Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case. Can I tell you a secret? That you been killed. What happened? Those kids. Our kids. My, my whole brain's a bunch of missing pieces. That's when it all started. Panic. Hello and welcome to a new season and a new year of still watching True Detective Season 3. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. If you have never listened to a still watching episode before, here's what we do. Each week, we break down the latest episode of whatever season of television we're watching. Uh, when it comes to detective, this will especially include the latest theories and twists. And this week, we will be discussing season three, episode one, the great war and modern memory and spoiling only up through the end of season three, episode one. We promise. And then we will also be speaking with someone who's in the episode. That's what we like to do here. This week, we have the great Mamie Gummer, who plays Lucy Purcell, a, a sort of uh, very interesting mother character on the show. Not Richard. only is Mamie Gummer great, she has a great line, which is a favorite of mine in anything whenever it appears, which is, everything you touch turns to shit. Everything you touch turns to shit. She's Such also got, like, bleach and eyeliner goals uh, for me personally in this episode. So, yeah, um, yeah this episode, uh, The Great War and Modern Memory, was directed by... Jeremy Salnier and written by Nick Pizzolatto, who was the, it has been the creator showrunner of True Detective all along. Um, he had a few co-writers this season, but this episode is accredited only to him. So Richard, before we just like dive into the episode itself, I wanted to get your quick, quick thoughts. Cause we did, we already talked about this a little bit last year, but sort of your thoughts on True Detective as a whole, you and I, uh, 
all of True Detective has happened since we worked at Vanity Fair, which is kind of fun to think of. I like, I kind of like thinking of our VF arc with like some True Detectives peppered in there. But I, at the se- the first season is one of the first things I remember covering for VF. Um, what are your, what are your True Detective feelings? How are you feeling about all this? Well, I was going to say the much revered slash much reviled Nick Pizzolatto because, um, you know, as TV, as people who follow TV history, recent TV history will remember, like the first season came about and it was this whole crazy phenomenon and everyone loved it. And most critics, you know, a few notable exceptions like Emily Nussbaum, um, from the New Yorker really, you know, went, went for it. It, it was winning, it, you know, it had like awards traction. It helped the McConaissance. He won an Oscar later that year. Um, it was all just like a big moment. And then HBO in its zeal to, you know, recapture lightning in a bottle to repeat the unrepeatable, uh, rushed Pizzolatto into doing a second season before he was really ready to do it. And that was the catastrophe with the wonderful cast, which included Rachel McAdams and Colin Farrell and, um, Taylor Kitsch. And yet it, I, I couldn't tell you a single plot point from that season except for like maybe an orgy. Um, so yeah, that's my opinion of, the, of Nick Pizzolatto and the show. Uh, it certainly dwindled after during that second season. And to be honest, maybe a little bit during the first. Um, but, uh, regardless, I was just so excited to jump back into the, it's not the same world because each season's a different world, but the tone of a true detective season. And, um, thus far, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued. How dare you forget the hours that Taylor Kitsch spends on a, a like angrily riding a motorcycle in season two of True Detective. Oh, and, and like haunting gay bars, right? <laughs> yeah, gay, yeah, yeah. It was a closet case. Anyway, um, yeah, that was uh, season two. There, there are some, there are some things I liked about season two. Uh, it was something I was covering and something I was like trying desperately to find the good in. And there's some like fun Northern California weirdness. And I mean, like that's the thing about True Detective. We'll get into it as we talk about it the season. I'm really excited for this to be a still watching show because true detective when it's at its best is like not just a good drama but also a theory show and we love a theory show we loved doing westworld so we like love hearing from you guys so if you want to email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com any theories you might have any details we might have missed um we'd love to hear from you we'll read your emails out loud next week when we get them in but um i love i love 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 a theory show and like when true detective is good it marries both great performance, really good, uh, direction and, um, some of that fun, like Reddit fodder theory stuff. So the, the potential is high. Richard has seen a few episodes. I've only seen one. Richard's not going to spoil any future things. I will make sure of it. I promise he says he doesn't remember them anyway. Um, and. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm not, not going to spoil that it's purgatory. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> uh, we, we are going to keep on track, but we're, I'm really excited to, t- to talk about this. And yeah, to, to Richard's point, like we're going to kick off. We're just going to do what we ordinarily do, which is run through the episode, talk about our observations. Um, the opening credits, which like the opening credits for True Detective have always been beautiful from the first season, second season, just these like, it's very similar to what we've seen before, but the opening credits tell this just really funny tale of the embattled history of the true 
Detective franchise because you've got people with like sort of vestigial credits on here. So Kerry Fukunaga has a producing credit, even though he left the series kind of somewhat acrimoniously. Woody Harrelson and, and Matthew McConaughey are on there, even though, you know, like as produce, they will have eternal producing credit on this. They didn't leave acrimoniously as far as I can tell, but you know, like those are, those are our long gone stars of season one. Um, and then you've got Jeremy Selnier who directed, who was, initially hired to do what Kerry Fukunaga did in the first season of Detective, which is direct every episode and sort of give it this nice, um, a lot of like what we talked about with Sharp Objects, this nice coherent one director, one vision sort of approach to uh, limited series television. Um, and then Jeremy Selnier left the project, I believe, somewhat acrimoniously, but he still has a producing credit. And then Daniel Sackheim, who I know from directing some Game of Thrones episodes, took over some of the episodes and he has a producing credits you know so it's just like this patchwork of like who's come who's gone who stayed um over this beautiful montage of haunting imagery and 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 music so <laughs> yeah it's like a yeah it's a trip through the uh the tv graveyard or the true detective graveyard or something yeah it's a, a, a pensive trip <laughs> it's a it's a crime scene in and of its own right so um this episode have you but you know before we get in into uh, each individual scene, are you a Jeremy Salnier fan, like, generally? Um, I am embarrassed to admit, as a professional film critic, that I have not seen any of his films. And the re- I have a fair-ish reason for that, which is that, like, every description I've read about them or person I've talked to about them has said, like, they're so brutal. And I do they not are. have much of a stomach for that. Like, I, yeah. I think that probably Green Room I would do better with than Blue Ruin. For whatever reason, although I hear his new one, Green Book, is really good, but then kind of, a, <laughs> kind of different. Yeah, Green Book uh, with True Detective star Mahershala Ali in it. No, um, that's right. Uh, what I about have, you? Do you like him? I have not seen Blue Ruin, sort of for the same reason that you mentioned. I watched uh, Green Room because of my love, enduring love for Anton Yelchin, yeah. um, the great, the the late great Anton Yelchin. Uh, Green Room is a is a, a film I really enjoy. It's about well, I mean, it's weird to say really enjoy and then neo-Nazi in the same breath, but it's about these like neo-Nazi skinheads who trap this punk band in the Pacific Northwest. Patrick Stewart plays this very like unlikely head of these neo-Nazis and it's, it is violently brutal, but also really well done. And then at Fantastic Fest this year, I saw his new film, Hold the Dark. Um, and that one I felt a little bit more mixed on, um, myself, but it is, um, I feel like I can recognize a lot of his fingerprints on, on this episode and what he does. Hold the Dark has Jeffrey Wright, Alexander Sarsgaard, Riley Keough, James Badge Dale, a lot of people that I like, but it is, it is both like, uh, slow and meditative and then like really, really awfully violent and brutal. So it's, it's a tough set, but, um, something that Jeremy Selnia does really well is a lot of this like, uh, barren, spare feeling wasteland sort of stuff that we see in this episode. And then he also has a really, you know, a really fine way of tapping into um, like primal brutality. And I feel like you get some of that primal, primal uh, violence feels like a part of the true detective genre, whatever that might be. Um, yeah, there's something, um, elemental about it. It's just something primordial about it. Like, yeah, it's, very, yeah. it's, it, it's always like of the earth and like, like up or a poisoned earth or something like, you know, when you figure you, the, the, the initial crime scene in the first season, which is this kind of like 
pagan sacrificial scene and then the creepy wicker doll in this episode like and those are like violence adjacent obviously or the dolls are anyway but like yeah yeah there's always something kind of of the earth in a kind of sick way i don't know yeah, absolutely. And, um, there's a, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to it, talk about it a little bit more in depth when we get to it, but there's a shot in this episode that involves like a fox just staring at the camera, which is just like the most Jeremy Sully thing I could think of, honestly. So, um, you know, yeah, I wonder if that's part of why season two didn't work is because it was urban. Yeah. That, I think that's, you know, that might be part of it. I, I like that we're, you know, so early reviews, you know, generally for the season, um, have been, you know, uh, positive in that it feels like um an improvement over season two but i think the criticism that comes hand in hand with that is that maybe it feels a little too close to season one maybe it's like oh whatever we did in season two didn't work so let's just try to repeat season one as close as possible there's differences here but you know there's there's we're talking about layers of memory we're in the rural south um we've got more of this supernatural sort of creepy crime scene vibe like there are like plenty of similarities here what do you think about you know, do you think it's okay for a show to lean back on itself or do you do you have some criticism for that i think it's okay to lean back on itself and to reference itself um in some ways because that's why people initially like the show i mean right that's the tricky thing with doing an anthology series versus you know a re- typical you know all the, all the same characters or most of the same characters over a length of time show um and you know look american horror story does it they constantly repeat tropes and all that stuff so um i think that where they run into trouble in this episode at least is the specific device of the weary detective being interviewed about a past case. Like, you know, that has somehow maybe kind of come into question again. Like that specific thing feels repetitive, but then they, then, you know, the show adds an extra layer by having the third timeline and the question of memory. So I think that like where season one was more about philosophy, this season thus far seems to be more about psychology. Oh, I love that. I love that distinction. All right. So we open on a kid riding a bike and, um, it's actually unclear, uh, which timeline we're opening with, uh, because the next shot is a 2015. And so to, to make things right off the bat, we've got a 2015 timeline, a 1990 timeline and a 1980 timeline. And Mahershala Ali is in all three. I expect we'll see some of the other characters in all three, but thus far he's the only one in all three of those, uh, storylines. I, I, I like to play a fun game in shows like this, uh, when I don't know the answer to try to figure out who I think will show up in other timelines based largely on wig work. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Stephen Dorff we are seeing again because not just because he's the co-lead of the show, but because he's got like a fairly, uh, not silly, but he's got, you know, he's got a, he's got a noticeable wig hairpiece in the 1980 timeline. So, you know, I suspect we'll see him in, in 1990, if not also in 2015. Um, yeah, it's tricky it, with the wig work, like, because it, it, between the 80 and 90 timelines, like there, there definitely are differences, but they're not like that you know, they're kind of subtle. So even in this first episode, I was having a little bit tr- of trouble, like being like, when are we, I mean, w- with, with Mahershala, I mean, um, so, uh, but yeah, anyway, like I, I'm, I'm sh- I trust the show to sort of go beyond just hair to kind of establish when things are happening. 
Yeah, I mean, even though they did that so beautifully in in season one with Matthew McConaughey's like legendary Russ Cole ponytail, but yeah. um, the yeah, we're we're helped in this episode by the fact that the 1990 timeline takes place entirely in an in an interrogation room, and so we never leave that room in 1990. But in if if he leaves that room in future and more investigating happens, we might need some like sideburns or something to help us a little bit more but or um, a hat. A hat. Uh, oh everyone loves a hat um so we've got a kid riding a bike and then <laughs> and then we we uh we see older mahershala getting ready mahershala plays uh wayne hayes who's an arkansas uh police officer and we see him in 2015 our past but the show's future or the show's present uh getting ready for something uh immediately this is like an extreme makeup job that either works for you or doesn't um and it I works per- for me yeah for me i will admit that the first time i saw it it didn't work for me and then like the second time i saw the episode like especially in later interview scenes when he's doing a lot of emoting and the makeup is just going with him i was like no this is a great makeup job i think it's incredible so and he changes his voice in a way that's not, you know, it's not old Sunny Boy. It's, you know, it's not like me in the high school play playing a <laughs> right. old person. Right. He's like, it's a very subtle bit of, of, of weakening and deepening, you know, so I think it really works. I think he's actually, you know, it's, it's rare that actor, young actors like him, like playing old, like works in this. I think so, so far anyway, like I, I think it's actually really compelling. I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, and then we hop immediately back to 1990. Uh, and we've got, uh, Hayes played by Mahershala Ali in a room with two guys that I was both like, Hey, it's that guy. Uh, it's Josh Hopkins and John Tenney. I know Josh Hopkins from Cougar Town and I know John Tenney from some, some stage work and also this show called Get Real where a lot of people met Anne Hathaway for the first time. Do you have any sort of like, Hey, it's that guy, uh, references for these guys? I mean, Josh Hopkins, I guess, yeah, from Cougar Town is probably the where I would go. Not, I didn't watch that show a ton, but, um, but he's also just like in a lot. And yeah. I feel the same is true of John Tenney. Was John Tenney on early edition? No. That's Kyle Chandler. That, no, that's the guy from Office Space who looks like Kyle Chandler. Ron Isn't Livingston? It? Isn't it Ron Livingston? Le, uh, like, or is it Kyle Chandler? Oh, it's Kyle Chandler. Okay. okay it's Kyle Chandler. But John Tenney was on another <laughs> show. Um, that I, he was on, um, oh, I wouldn't know him from the closer, but maybe I know him from the closer. <laughs> I don't know. That's what I, I was like, do I know him from the closer? I was like, no, Joanna, you've not watched the closer. It's get real. That's where you know him from. Oh, but anyway. I, might, I might know him from Kristen Jenna with short lived sitcom Kristen. Okay. Anyway, these guys are here. Um, you know, uh, Josh Hopkins is playing a character named called Jib- Jim Dobkins, and he's a private attorney from Arkansas who's sort of like reopening the case on behalf of, we suspect, the family of an accused man. And we don't find out who the accused man or, or an incarcerated man, it would seem. Convicted we, man, yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't find out who that is in the space of this episode. We know it's a he. We don't know who. Um, and then John Tenney is playing a character named Alan Jones, who seems like he's the, like the DA. Um, that, you know, who originally worked on the case. Uh, once again, pay attention to the wig work. It looks like we're going to see him a little younger, probably in the 1980 storyline. Um, and then we hear this is the first of what we will see in terms of like memory in the past, the present and the future sort of blurring together is we hear in the 1990 storyline, one of the guys say, you have memory problems, right? Which might actually have happened. But what we then hear immediately again after that is Mahershala Ali, uh, his voice 
on a recorder saying, you have memory problems. It's a very like memento kind of scene where he's sitting there listening to his own voice, talking to himself in 2015, uh, where he has like dementia of some kind and he's giving himself some guidance of how to get through the day. Uh, this is the first of many times where we will see what is happening in 2015 and what is happening in 1990 bleed into the other right. uh, story times. Usually, at least in this episode, just through, uh, the Wayne Hayes character, Marshall's character. Um, so. It's kind of like a Westworldy, like, when am I thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, with Bernard. Um, but, and I think that's a really interesting conceit, kind of having Wayne from the past actually almost dialoguing with Wayne of the 2015 present, you know, and, and you're like, okay, so like, when is his consciousness, you know? Um, but the tricky thing about that is that that device, and we'll see how the show handles it going forward, is like, if it's going to be all sort of like, subjective reality memory, you know, then it's hard to do that same thing when there are scenes that that character's not in. Because then you're like, who's remembering that? I'm expecting. And once again, I have not, I genuinely have not seen any other episodes, but I'm expecting that we will see Steven Dorff's character, Steven Dorff, who plays his partner in that interrogation room as well. And then it's not quite this. He's not our narrator, but he's still someone who's remembering things, you know? So it's a little complicated. And it's also complicated by the fact that another show did this idea of like memory and bleeding of reality, past and present, last year so well, which is Sharp Objects. Sharp Objects does it differently, but that idea of audio bleeding from one reality mm-hmm. into another um, is something that they did so beautifully on that show. And so like it's it's a much lighter touch in this in this series. We'll see how it how it does as it goes on. But I was immediately like, oh I would think this was so incredible if I hadn't just seen Sharp Objects. Right. And, and, and the thing yeah, no and the thing about that is that the thing about shows or movies or whatever about memory where memory is compromised is you kind of do have to follow your own rules. You know, you can't be like, they're a complete mess to kind of, you know, um, you know, satisfy one scene. And then all of a sudden they have a ton of recall. And maybe that is the way that some people's memory disorders work. But like, I'm thinking about another thing, not sharp objects, but another thing about a, a drunken lady, in, you know, investigating a murder, which was the girl on the train, Emily Blunt. Oh yeah. Where she's kind of gradually getting these memories back. And it's like, no, I mean, I, I've been blackout drunk. Like those memories are gone. <laughs> they are not coming back. Like, you know, there's not, you know, um, and, and I feel like that was that story violating its own rules in a way. Um, and so I really, really hope that this show is careful about that. I don't mind if there's a little bit of give or whatever, but like if there's a point later in the show where I'm just like, but wait, what was all that stuff then in the beginning where he's leaving himself messages on his, on a voice recorder, you know, like why isn't he doing that anymore? I don't know. I'm just, a, I don't know. Right. So, uh, we will, we will keep our eye on it. Um, you know, it's early days for this, but I think it's fair to hold the, hold the show to its own rules, you know, is what you're saying. Um, something that he, that we hear Wayne tell himself on the, on the tape recorder ominously is like, remember the nightstand if you need it. Uh, he opens the nightstand drawer and there's the gun sort of like at the forefront there. There's also though alcohol and nail clippers. So maybe it's just the nail clippers. Like maybe. Sure. If you have a hangnail, don't worry. The nail clippers are in the night. Just shoot it off. <laughs> um, and then we meet his son, Henry, who's played by Ray Fisher. Ray Fisher, very famously, um, was cast as cyborg in the, like, you know, is it still even happening Justice League franchise? Um, I actually quite liked Ray Fisher in that role, uh, in I that too, movie like, that I didn't yeah. like, but I liked him in it. So I was, I'm happy to see him here. 
This week's episode of Still Watching True Detective Season 3 is brought to you by the new CW series Roswell, New Mexico. Your new epically romantic supernatural obsession is about to arrive. Tuesday, January 15th on The CW from the executive producer of The Vampire Diaries and The Originals comes the out-of-this-world story about making contact. It's the highly anticipated series premiere of Roswell, New Mexico. When Liz Ortega returns to her sleepy yet legendary hometown of Roswell, she's reunited with her high school crush Max Evans, a small-town cop with an extraordinary secret. Drawn together as if by some unseen force of attraction, myth becomes jaw-dropping truth as Max reveals to Liz that he's an alien who's arrived during the infamous UFO crash of 1947. From another world, along with his brother and sister, all vowed never to tell a soul the truth about what they are, or the mind-blowing powers they each possess. When Max's siblings find out that he has entrusted their secret with Liz, events are set in motion that will rock Roswell to its core. Don't miss the unbelievable series premiere of Roswell, New Mexico, Tuesday, January 15th, only on The CW. Um, but you know, so, so we find out that, that Wayne's going to be interviewed, um, by some TV folks. And, uh, he says, and we hear another thing on the tape recorder, which is kind of ominous where he says, figure out how much they know you don't need any surprises late in the game. Like that's why he's doing this interview is to figure out how much the interviewer knows about this cold case. And so it seems like he's trying to get ahead of something. Like what does he know that's not public knowledge? What is he hiding? Mm-hmm. Um, which seems different from the Wayne we meet in 1990, who I feel like has been open about everything. Do you know? I mean, we'll see, but let, you know, he does say though in the 1990s timeline that he's like, you know, I'm not doing any major cases, but that lets me see the family a bit more, you know, so like there is a gradual receding of himself from the center of this investigation, it would seem, right? Yeah. That's and true. maybe he's trying to get his way back in. Um, so we, we've met his, his son, Henry, and then we start to hear about his wife. Um, we hear about her first in the 1990 timeline. He says, my wife is publishing a book about the case. Maybe she can help you. We find out much more about that later. Um, and then we hop back to 1980. Um, and uh, (laughs) I think this is a fun detail. I mean, not, it's not fun, but like the day Steve McQueen died is like the most true detective thing I could think of as a timestamp. Right. I was laughing about it. I was like, okay, so what's, what is Pizzolatto on about? Is this about like the death of a certain kind of masculine American ideal? Like what, you you know, like, like the beginning of, you know, the end of the seventies, but like, you know, and all these guys are still smoking and drinking and carrying on, but like there are consequences. Steve McQueen died of cancer, you know, like, um, uh, I think that, like, I kind of half rolled my eyes at that, but also yeah. kind of found it endearing at the same time. Exactly, both. Uh, we meet Tom Purcell, played by the great Scoot McNary, who you always want in a, like, sort of scummy murder mystery kind of story that you're going to tell. Did you see my great Scoot McNary tweet? Last no, time? hit me with your Scoot tweet. McNary, Queen of Scoots. <laughs> That's so good. Um, I, I look forward to more Scoot tweets. Uh, I hope that's not the last of them. Um, I, I'm, I'm a huge Scoot McNary fan, as, as is, as are most people. Um, you know, so Scoot plays Tom, who's the father of two kids. Uh, their mom and if, played- and if they have yeah. that, an actor like Scoot McNary playing that role, I feel like he's not just going to be like in one episode. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, it kind of, it, it suggests to me that like, this isn't going to be one of those murder mysteries where like the family just sort of gets like one crying scene and then recedes into the background. 
Well, he's also in the opening credits, so that's a nice oh, too. Well done. But like, yeah, um, but but yeah, he's not just he, a. He's not um. He's not just going to be in one episode. B. He's not just going to be like the beleaguered father. Is that my daughter in there? Sort of like thing. And well, then, you can win like, an Oscar for doing that. So I mean, <laughs> fair enough. And then and then C. Yeah, I think if Scoot McNary, honestly, I think if Scoot McNary shows up in anything, I watching this episode. I don't suspect him, but we all know that the family is like a pri- always the primary suspect. And Scoot just like always has that like very like weaselly quality to him. And so, you know, at least you can see why maybe detectives would suspect him of something. Right. Well, yeah. And you that know? even comes up in the episode where he's like, right. of course, of course I expect, I suspected him at first. Like that's what yeah. you do. Have you met Scoot? That's who he right. is. So yeah. So we got Tom, we got his kids, Will and Julie, they're 12 and 10. They go off riding bikes. Uh, they're supposed to be back before, uh, dark. And then we've got the mom, Lucy played by Mamie Gummer, and she is not around. Uh, we'll find out a little bit more about that later. And then we've got, uh, what I wrote down in my notes immediately is, Two to three teenage dirtbags in a purple VW, um, which is another sort of like, I was just sort of like, bless you, true detective. Like, honestly, like teenage dirtbags in a bright purple VW. Okay. In Arkansas um, in 1980. Like, yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Love it. Um, the, the two main dirtbags we're, we're, we're working with here is, uh, Brandon Flynn playing Ryan Peters. Brandon Flynn, I know from 13 Reasons Why. I know um, him as Sam Smith's ex-boyfriend. Great. Um, all good things to be. And then what's funny about Reese Wakefield, who plays Freddie Burns, Reese, Wa- Reese Wakefield is an Australian actor playing Freddie Burns. When I saw him, I was like, man, that kid has a face for a horror movie. He belongs in a horror movie. Then I looked him up and I was like, oh, I've never seen a Purge movie, but he's like, I've seen that promo photo from the Purge <laughs> with funny. his face in it. Like yeah. he's smiling up at a camera. Like I was just like, oh, that's why I think he has a horror movie face. Cause he literally does. Anyway, these are, these are two teen suspects. We see some atmospheric firecrackers going off by a water tower. And then we meet a third, uh, suspect, which is, uh, Brett Woodard, who is also referred to as like the trash guy man or the trash guy fella later played by a Cree actor, Michael Gray eyes. And I think, um, his, the fact that this is a native American actor, uh, will come into play before the episode is over Richard. And what this, you know, sequence is, you know, cleverly doing is setting this, you know, is introducing us to everyone who bore witness to these children biking down the street before they just vanished. Right. You know? And so, um, the camera sort of lingers on each of them. There's a woman on a porch, which, you know, taking down Halloween directories and she smiles in ways. I don't think she's, you know, a suspect maybe, but like, but <laughs> right. like it's, it's, it's an interesting way of, of, um, I mean, a succinct way of, of teasing, um, suspects to come. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because, and like, you know, I mean, what could be more ominous, ominous than this, this one guy like driving around his little like weird trunk, like vehicle, a junk yeah. vehicle. And then these teenagers who not just like see the kids, but like turn over the side of the road and just like watch them go by in slow motion, like as ominously as possible. And so. the minute I saw those three and I thought about, okay, this is a show set in Arkansas. I was immediately like, Oh, is this going to be a West Memphis three thing? You know, oh, which yeah, is, yeah. which they later get at when they ask about the black Sabbath t-shirt in one of the, in, you know, interviews. That's um, true. And I, I, I mean, if they want to go that direction, I would understand it because like that's, that was such a huge true to life story. If people don't know about it, it's, you know, there were three kids that were murdered, little boys that were murdered in, um, or maybe it was two kids. I don't know, but it was uh, who were murdered in, in, in Arkansas and 
three teenage boys were accused of Satanism and the murders, and they were in jail for a long time, and they recently got out. They were not exo- exonerated. They did an Alfred plea, which is basically you don't you don't have to say that the government got it wrong or whatever. Anyway, if that's what the show wants to do this season, like I would understand that, but I'm kind of hoping not because I feel like, well, then we already know they didn't do it. You know, right? We yeah. know that we know they're innocent if if that's the kind of theme that they're working on. Well, I got, I gotta say, um, we don't get an inner, like an interview with a third kid, but, um, Reese Wakefield and Brandon Flynn, who we mentioned, those two teens who are playing teens, like when I looked up their ages and saw like one was 30 and one was 25, I was like, we're at least going to see them in 1990, right? Like we're, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. We're at least going to see these guys play 10 years later, I think, if this is who they've cast as their teens. So, um, I, I, I still don't know who the, who the and it seems like they're talking about a solitary male, so like maybe just one of them gets accused. But you're right, like when you hew too closely to a real case, even though True Detective had its uh, the first season had its sort of um, origins in some real life cases and stuff like that. But when you hew too closely, um, Joanna, you, you know, said you would never mention my case on the podcast. <laughs> um, I know, but you were like the Orange King, and this is the Yellow King, so it's different. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> um, all right. And then we get, uh, we get in the 1990 timeline when, when Wayne is being interviewed, we get his first like unreliable narrator moment when he tells the, you know, the lawyers that he and his partner were following up on a case when in fact we find them in a junkyard, like shooting cans and at rats and shooting the shit, basically. Um, here we meet Roland West, uh, played by Stephen Dorff. Uh, hit me with your Dorff thoughts, Richard. My Dorf, well, um, when I was home for the holiday break over Christmas, um, I told my sister that we were going to do this podcast and she asked if I'd seen any episodes and I told her I'd seen some and, and, and I was like, oh, by the way, Stephen Dorf is in it. And she like lost her shit because Stephen Dorf for a certain age group, you know, who were maybe a little bit on the fringes for a little while, like, you know, we're watching things like, um, oh, it's not, it's SFW, right? Uh, that teen movie that he's in, um, Anyway, Steven Dorff was kind of like one of the thinking girls or boys crushes in like the mid late nineties. Like, like an Ethan Hawkey sort of thing, right? I mean, like we could bit? say like an Ethan Hawk also ran in a way. Yeah. Um, and then he became known to a broader um, and specifically straight male audience, perhaps when he was in Blade, um, as the villain. And I think the first movie. Um, yep. and, but he's, and he's, and he's been a journeyman since he got a lead role in the Sofia Coppola movie kind of out of nowhere in the early mid two thousands. Um, and he's just been trucking along. So it's really fun to see him in what I'm hoping is like a juicy role in this show because, you know, yeah, usually the, the Dorfus. Yeah. yeah. The Dorfus lines and like the partner in these shows, these tends, tends to be a pretty significant role. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, know and love Stephen Dorf primarily from the music video Cryin uh, oh, by go. Aerosmith exactly. with Alicia yeah. Silverstone so mm-hmm. um yeah this is this is when like music videos could like make a person famous see i had a crush on whichever london brother was in another of those with tyler alicia silverstone aerosmith videos uh, I think that was Jeremy. I gotta yeah. say, I'm gonna put my money on Jeremy London. All right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so Dorf is here. Um, he's got this. So his name is Roland West. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit later about some of the like, um, literary influences on this, but Roland, it should be noted, is like both a, uh, classic Arthurian knight name and also the name of the gunslinger character in the Stephen King, um, Dark Tower 
uh, books. Uh, there's another Dark Tower reference later in the episode. So I don't think it's insignificant. Like Roland's not a common Arkansas cop name. So no. I don't think it's, it's insignificant here. And yeah. West is a part of the country that a lot of hard boiled, like male crime writers are obsessed with. It's true. There you go. So we got Hayes and West. Uh, you know, it's a, a regular Rizalian Isles up here. Um, but yeah, so they're, you know, they're talking about this and we get, like this episode uh, kind of hits home the Vietnam theme that we will get to a little bit more, but I do like that it was introduced sort of crassly yet nimbly right in this moment when um Roland says like, basically we should go to a whorehouse. Wayne is like, no thanks. And then Roland's like, what, you didn't get any Saigon trim? And I'm like, oh, he's a Vietnam vet. Yeah, Great, he didn't say know? like, what was it like during the war, the Vietnam war that you were in? You know, like, I, like it was, it was, it was right? smoother than that, which I appreciated. Yeah. I liked it. I mean, it's gross and I liked it. Um, and I liked also his whole bullshit thing about like, I'm a feminist. If they want to sell me their ass, they can. Like, I just. I thought that was great. A mm-hmm. little more ham-fisted, though, is Wayne being like, I'll never get married and have kids. And you're like, oh, we know you do, bud. So that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, he was like, I wouldn't want to inflict that on somebody. Yep, yeah. On a, a, a wife and children, yeah. Um, and then we get the uh, that, that Fox moment that I mentioned earlier that's very mm-hmm. Jeremy Selnier. So, um and then, uh, and then we go back to Tom, and he's at home, and it's very dark, and he sees that the bikes are not in the garage, and the kids are gone. And he drives around looking worried. And this is something that, that, uh, Scoot McNary as Tom perfectly masters this look that I know I've had on my face a million times, which is like inner panic, but outward trying to not let the panic overtake me. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, and he's just like, his kids are gone. He can't find them. Uh, he's calling around. No one's seen them. Uh, and I thought and it was well done, like a subtle bit where he looks up from the car hood and it's darker. And he kind of realizes that time has passed and like he just kind of expected in the, the, the regular flow of a day at home that like the kids would have just kind of come home. And so it all of a sudden dawns on him how strange it is that they're not there, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which I think is a lot of the t- how time, how we notice when someone or something is missing. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a pretty obvious thing to say because like how else no. do you notice? But like it's just that kind of like, wait, you know, something's off. So. Well, I, I had to replay the part like three times when he looks back into the dark garage and I was like, what is he looking at? His tools? What's there? And I was like, oh, it's what's not there. The bikes aren't there. Okay. Like, right. yeah, it's one of those moments where you look around and you're like, hey, where are the bikes? Hey, where are the kids? Sort yeah. of thing. Um, <clears throat> we, we see, we cut over to like the teens at the Rangers Tower. Um, Freddie, the Freddie character is, uh, playing on what looks to me like Will's bike. I went back and sort of double checked it. It looks, I mean, it's a black, small kid's black bike. It could be someone else's, but it looks a lot like Will's, uh, the missing kid and his sister's bike with its banana seat looks like it's parked nearby. So at the very least, like the kids' bikes look like they're at this party at the, at the Rangers Tower. Um, and, and something that, that I thought of when I was like sitting there comparing shots of like kids' bikes and which, and what, what looks like what is the fact that I, have um since stranger things premiered on netflix a couple years ago been calling that genre where like kids ride around and have adventures on bikes the kids on bikes genre like all that steven spielberg sort of et shit i mean it's Uh, the logo for amblin entertainment like yeah on a bike so exactly it's of this time when like we felt like it was okay to to send kids around the neighborhoods on bikes and not like before helicopter parents that comes up in this episode too where and before a murder case 
of Jacob Wetterling in Minnesota from, um, from like oh. a small town in Minnesota that, and I think it was 1990. A friend of mine grew up in that town at the same time. So she remembers it. But anyway, they did a podcast about it, like a true crime podcast, like two years ago. And while they were doing their podcast, the murder was solved, but oh it was God. such a big deal that it created all these laws and it made it parents very scared about it. I mean, I think that one murder case, cause it was three boys riding a bike, their bikes to go rent a video on like a Friday night. Um, and one of them got abducted. Um, and murder. And so I think that that is kind of the like, er case where you saw the end of the kids on bikes thing. Wow. Okay. I had no idea. You have so much true crime knowledge that you can bring into us. I'm like, I didn't know <laughs> that you're the perfect person to talk to about all this. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, so this is like a, a way twisted sort of, I mean, Stranger Things is too. A kid gets abducted on a bike in Stranger Things too. But like, I don't know if it's intentional that like Pizzolatto is like, I'm going to do the 1980s kids on bikes thing but like that sort of seems to kind of be what's happening well i mean um, scoot mcnary yeah. is credited at the end credits as the demogorgon so <laughs> spoiler sorry. Um, oh shit sorry <laughs> and then we get we get the we get this scene where uh wayne and roland are riding around in the car together which is like another if you want to be like oh this is just like season one like there's so many scenes in season one of woody harrelson and matthew mcconaughey riding around the car having weird conversations none of these two characters roland and wayne are ever going to say as weird as shit as rust ever says uh in season one but you know there are they are talking about like why hunt a boar instead of a fox and it's like you know oh to even the playing field sort of i don't know it's a it's an interesting thing um, it's also further established or or beginning to establish um uh wayne's character as this I don't know, sort of like he can hunt, but when he says with a bow, like he's clearly got outdoor experience. Um, later in the episode, we find out more about like his tracking abilities and what he did in Vietnam. And so I think there's something a little bit funny where it's basically an artful prestige television way, television way to like outline, outline the idea that he's like the super cop. Um, but, um, I don't know. I thought it was, kind of, I think, I think it's kind of fun to like establish this pretty taciturn you know, black man in 1980 Arkansas is like the sort of like, you know, detective to end all detectives, you know, in this, in the state or whatever. Cause he can, well, and it's funny when you met, you know, he gets called a tracker a number of times in this. And, you know, we, we, we talk about his Vietnam experience. We talk about him hunting with a bow, like to me, at least in, uh, you know, the great season two of Fargo, when you talked about men coming back, from Vietnam and this kind of storyline, um, that was a native act. It was a Native American character and that was a native actor. And I could like easily see this character being like a native, you know, like there just seems to be this vestigial, uh-huh. like this could have been a Native American character. We have a different Native right. American character in this episode. I don't know if that was ever the intention. I don't know if then they were like, oh, but we can get Marshall Ali. So we're just going to do that. Or if it's just sort of like, uh, yeah, these are stereotypical things that some like would be elements of a Native American Vietnam vet cop, but you know we've got a we're, this is a black actor in the world. Like I don't know, but also if- like if there's another stereotype, which is like you know in the, at the beginning of the action movie where they're talking about Steven Seagal or something, you're like he did two tours, he could shoot a man from whatever, and like it's true. Uh, you know Wayne is also getting that treatment. So there's a bit of injustice in terms of the Native American tracking aspects of it. There is some other justice for like that a black character is getting to have all this kind of, you know, superhuman de- detecting ability that um, maybe is reserved for white characters and other things. 
Yeah, no, very true. Um, and then, you know, the cops get called to the house. Uh, the kids are, you know, the kids are officially missing. I like the little moment where they like, they get out of the car and they both put some gum in their mouth because they've been drinking alcohol mm-hmm. and it's not to cover the cigarettes. That's why they put the gum in their mouth. They also, before they left the junkyard, they were like, maybe we can find someone to beat up. Like, you know, these are not like by the book cops by any stretch of the imagination, right? Um, and then we get another one of those moments of the past and the present bleeding when like Mar- Marshall's character Wayne sort of whips around as someone says, this setup, okay for you. And we cut to 2015, you right. know, so he like, he looks over his shoulder, here's someone, but it's someone from 2015. And it is another actor I'm really excited about. It's Sarah Gadden, who I didn't even know was in this uh season. And I like literally gasped when I saw her Canadian actress. Sarah Gadden, uh, as Elisa Montgomery, a TV interviewer. Uh, Sarah Gadden, I know best from Alias Grace, but she was also in, uh, Richard, what was that film called? Indignation. In- Indignation. Where she was so cruelly punished for giving Logan Lerman a handjob. How dare she? So I love Sarah Gadden. She's also in, uh, the great Canadian TV series Letterkenny. So. Yeah, she's the- been long percolating and, you know, hopefully this will introduce her. I don't know how big the role is going to be, but like, in, you know, sort of further introduce her to an American audience because she's really spectacular actress. My hope, not just because she's blonde and her name is Sarah, but like my hope is this is going to be some kind of like Sarah Paulson-esque role for her because like I know she can do that. Alias Grace, she like, she's incredible in that. If you haven't seen that, that's a Margaret Atwood adaptation on Netflix. She does this like crazy turn on a dime shit uh, in that show. So like she's got all this range in her um, that I would love to see. But yeah, I also don't know if how much she's in the show. So we'll see. Um, and then we once again uh, are reminded that this all started on the day Steve McQueen died. Um, that that comes up again. And uh, this time, though, he remembers the moon. Uh, Wayne remembers the moon. And uh, we see in 1980 him meeting Tom and interrogating him in 19. You know, we're hopping back and forth the time in 1990. He says he doesn't think Tom is lying. Uh, and then Wayne tries to turn the recorder off and the lawyer's having none of it and turns it back on sort of thing. Um, and, uh, so we, we, we find out that the night, what is happening in 1990 is the man. And once again, we don't know who some man who's been convicted is trying to overturn the conviction in 1990 and that he worked that Wayne worked the case, the same case again, the Purcell case in 1990, a decade after it happened. Um, so we then, know that this interrogation that we're seeing in, with Josh Hopkins and John Tenney yeah. led to a case being reopened, right? Right. Okay, yeah. And the other important thing we know that happened in 1990 is that Wayne's wife, Amelia, played by Carmen uh, Ejogo, is, uh, she wrote a book at the same time, which became a classic. Which is like the true blood of the 90s. Yes. Yeah. It, in fact, I like freeze frame. In cold uh, blood, I mean. In cold blood, not in, true blood. Yeah. In cold blood. I, I, uh... Oh, I, I wrote True Blood in the, in the notes. That's my bad. Um, uh, but it, like later I freeze framed, uh, you know, he's looking at the copy of the book later in the episode and I freeze framed the back cause there's all this writing on the back and it was like the, the, you know, the fake copy that they wrote for the back of the book is like as, you know, a, a, a an in cold blood for a new generation. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, uh huh. All right. So, um, and then Mahershala, as Wayne gets in this old age makeup, gets a chance to just like really break down as he talks about his wife. And it's, uh, you know, his wife who has died. We see his son watching him give this interview and he talks about how she was a good writer, a good teacher, a good investigator. And it's, um, it's really lovely because this is not, it seems like hopefully, um, 
that they had a very good relationship, a very like a relationship built on mutual respect. I hope. I don't know. Yeah. But, he also but, says he says those kids, my kids, my wife. Yeah. And you know, we know that the we only know that the do we know what happened to the wife at this point? That she died a couple she, years. We know ago. she's dead, right? But like the other ones, the kid, my kid, those kids, my kids, we don't like that's kind of vague at this point. Um, and we also, we only know one of his kids is alive and, and kicking. So I don't know. It's just like an interesting sort of like that he would group all those three, you know, people together or whatever, all those five people together like that. Yeah. And I should say that, um, in the opening credit, the only indication that I have that he's got, you know, is in the opening credits, you see a shot of, of, uh, the Amelia character with two young kids. Right. So he's got at least two kids. We've met one. Uh, we don't know what's going on with the other one. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, you know, the, the cops are in- interrogating Tom and, and they go into the, the Purcell house and the, the Purcell, both the Purcell house and, uh, the car that Wayne and Roland were riding around in, I felt like I could smell the cigarette smoke coming off the, off the, like everything just, like I think the production design and, and just the run down, seedy cigarette smoke, rural uh, state of all of this, uh, is remarkably well done. This week's episode of Still Watching True Detective Season 3 is also brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Simple and intuitive, clear design with the data presented in an easy-to-digest way. Robinhood is the kind of application that works for even financial newcomers like Richard and myself. Richard! I know we've already talked in other podcasts about the stacks of money that you keep around all the gold doubloons in your apartment. Yeah. What to do with them? What to do with them, Richard? It's a good question. I mean, you know, we're starting a new um, season of still watching and it's a new year and I have made some, I won't like get personal, but I have made some uh, resolutions for 2019 that I'm thus far sticking to and they've been saving me some money. So I have a little extra cash jingling around, Uh Uh, but I'm not, you know, based on my resolutions, I'm not that responsible person. So I really appreciate an app that uh, makes it easy to, you know, invest and and monitor all that stuff uh, in one simple place. One thing that I've always been really intimidated by with financial apps is it seems like you have to pay someone a ton of money in order to figure out how to manage your money and you're like well what if i don't have a ton of money uh to begin with as the name of this app sort of indicates robin hood this is this is an app for people with a little money and a lot of money other brokerages charge you up to ten dollars for every trade but, but robin hood doesn't charge commission fees you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits and it's so easy to use that so they have charts and market data, all this stuff, and it's just a few taps on your phone. Um, they also have a web platform uh, where they've divided things up into different stocks and different collections, like 100 Most Popular or sections like Entertainment and Social Media, uh, and they have curated categories like female CEOs, uh, plus analyst ratings, you know, so you can get some advice from the pros. And if you have no idea what you're doing, if you're like, I thought a portfolio was something photographers put together when they're like trying to get a job somewhere. It's what uh, I bring on my go for my modeling gigs. <laughs> exactly. But like if for a stock portfolio, you can learn all about it as you build it. And that's sort of the whole idea behind Robinhood. You can discover new stocks. You can track favorite companies with a personalized news feed. You can get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robin is giving our listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build their portfolio. Sign up at watching.robinhood.com 
com. That's watching.robinhood.com. This is where we meet Lucy. And I think this is a good time to just like pop over to our interview with the great Mamie Gummer. So here we go. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's Mamie Gummer interview time. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for taking this time. I really appreciate it. I wanted to kick off by asking you maybe kind of a a broad view question. We're only going to talk about episode one, you and I, but I wanted to ask you. Oh, good. That's the only one I've seen. Okay, perfect. perfect. That's all we need to talk about. Um, but, um <laughs> I was wondering if, uh, you know, we're, we're in the third season of this anthology series. And I was wondering if you as a participant and maybe even as just a watcher had any thoughts about what makes a season of true detective, you know, after three seasons in, what are the elements of a true detective story in your view? Uh, um, I'd say there's the 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 eerie quality, um, American Gothic, slightly mythic, and the, the the kind of elliptical plotting is sort of like it feels like an incantation of something like oh wow like, yeah I think mean, it like plays on um, you know it's thrilling and it's like uh, a good um, you know good episodic television but I think that it um, I think that people respond to it really didn't mind something deeper without you even really realizing it. Did you get a chance to talk to Nick at all about um, any specific influences on this season? I know he's like he has a very literary approach to television. And so I'm curious if you guys chatted at all about. Um, I didn't really dive. Uh, I, I'm, I'm yeah, aware. I think like um, from the outside that there are um, all manner of like illusion references to, to text that I'm not nearly <laughs> smart enough to, to know. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will push back a little bit on the on you claiming to not be smart enough because I when I think about <laughs> you as a performer, I always think of you as these like very 
verbal erudite sort of very sophisticated characters yeah. and then you get and then you get to play lucy here which is a really fun like you know slightly different thing i think that i'm seeing from you what was it like inhabiting you know this kind of role well all this sort of erudite intellectual stuff is a total farce and it's just completely put on and this is really getting to like my roots <laughs> it felt it felt like you know i'm just stripped down and raw um and raging it was so fun <laughs> to just like unleash you like come in into this episode guns a blazing basically and you and you get to start with this like really juicy sort of resentful uh interaction with scoot mcnary's character did you uh did you and scoot do any work to like lay the foundation for this marriage that is just could not be more on the rocks (laughs) um I think that we, you know, had done our our homework separately in whatever, you know, however many years it's taken us to arrive um, at that house. But uh, we we just honestly, I was like, there was so so many cigarettes smoked. I was so happy to, to to quit. But like at the while we were making it. just sitting in the mud and smoking and um, ugh. it's so gross. I'm like <laughs> like eight eight months pregnant now and thought of a cigarette is so revolting. I loved working with Scoot so much. Um, he made it so easy, um, just so so very alive, like a, just a raw nerve. Um, and we just shot out of cannon each and every time. We just cut to the screen. Yelling. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's funny that you mentioned those cigarettes because one of my notes from watching the first episode was just like, dear God, I can almost smell it coming off the screen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's like what life just needs to be like. Like you see it in all the all the tones of the sets. Like, there, like nothing was a true white. You know, everything had this sort of like sepia tone because I think like cigarette smoke is just, must have just like seeped into every like all the colors are kind of like a little jaundice. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that the show does so brilliantly with this hop skip through time is, you know, as as far as I'm concerned, really kind of hold up a mirror to our own like. I don't know, some, sometimes creepy fascination with true crime, with murders, when you've got like, there's a book and a TV interview, and, mm-hmm. and then like decades later, we're still fascinated with this, with this case. Um, what do you make mm-hmm. of like our collective fascination with, with murder, with crime of this nature? Such a good question. I mean, I think it, it must just be like, fascinating and of like primal importance maybe we in some ways think that by investigating these things we can cheat them or or um you know that they won't hold the same kind of power over us that kind of fear that we can best that fear and um and i'm definitely like guilty of it and i'd like things like the staircase and like 
you know, murderer, serial, you know, they're like all these sort of elevated forms of that, but it is all in the sort of same, you know, rooted in the same place. Um, this like kind of, yeah, macabre fascination, you know, it's always been that. So it's like kind of Christian Anderson and all the fairy tales and stuff. Like, deeply creepy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Deeply, deeply creepy. And like, that's what we, that's what we're presented with. They're all like cautionary, you know, especially when they involve children. Yeah. Did you have some of those like, you know, grim Hans, Christian Anderson fairy tale type vibes in mind with this particular story of a, like a boy and a girl who go missing? You know, not, not explicitly, but I suppose there is a kind of like a Hansel and Gretel, uh, um, yeah, vibe to it, um, and and all that stuff. It sort of brought more to to the fore with like the you know the straw dolls and stuff like that. Much of of season one, and I guess like our fascination with these sort of stories in general, um, I think is also tied up to our own instinct to play detective. Like we want to solve the case. Oh, totally. Um, that's certainly true of True Detective season one. Like the theories kick up everywhere. What do you, what do you make of that, of, of, of that kind of TV watching where there's all these like fan theories or, or people trying to beat the show to solve the case kind of engagement? <laughs> well, I know that I, I do that. Right. Like, I mean, with the staircase, I never right. would have, I never would have jumped to the owl <laughs> But like, you like that theory is beyond, but um, but yeah, yeah, it's almost like you can you can you can undo the crime or something, or you can be a hero and bring it back if you. And it's it is sort of it's rewarding, isn't it, to to be able to be like, I told you, I told you, <laughs> do it. <laughs> Is that something you anticipate? I don't know. I don't know how much you follow sort of fan engagement with, with, you know, your own work, but is that something you anticipate sort of peeking in on, like looking around the, the internet to be like, have they figured it out? They'll never guess it. I don't know. Sort of thing. Um, maybe I've never really done that. I've always been pretty wary of like, um, <laughs> checking in like that. Um, once once a thing is sort of done, I try and let it let it lie. But um, but with this, I, I I might because I'm kind of as I said, like I there are so many holes in my understanding of the of um, the season as it plays out because I was only actually given the material that pertained to my character. So like oh. I know sort of like generally. I know how things shake out, you know, where it ends up. Um, but I don't know all the steps and ways in which it, you know, how it gets there. So I'll be engaging with it in just the same, same way. And maybe, maybe with a brand new baby in the wee hours, uh, you know, you'll be, you'll be tempted to <laughs> check in. That's what what's you want to tune into at like three in the morning. Yes. Fair enough. Yeah. Murder. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, of Jeremy Selnier's work. Uh, and I'm wondering, I find his process so interesting whenever he talks about it. Mm. And I was wondering what it was like for you to work with him as a director. Oh, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so much. I mean, he, uh, he captured like the, the, 
the room on like a microscopic level. Like he got, you get such a feel for the, for the world. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I just trusted him implicitly because he, I too like love his, his, uh, his work. Well, it's, it's interesting because yeah, he, um, his work has this very, you know, my understanding of it is this very like primal aspect to it. And I feel like that's just, it completely baked into this first episode, which then just sets a tone that carries throughout the series, I imagine. And so, yeah, I think his, his signature is certainly on it. He certainly sets the um, the tone, I think, in in a really thoughtful and and, and right right way. Excellent. Well, thank you, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the with the baby. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Familiar. I mean, I didn't talk about it in the interview, and we haven't mentioned in this episode. But you know, if you don't know, maybe Gummer is Meryl Streep's daughter, and she gives like one line reading in this scene, um, or maybe it's later in the episode. I think it's when she just says, "I'll make the coffee." That's like just it was just super streepy. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Gummer girls, Grace and Mamie Gummer. Um, what did you think of her of her entrance here and her performance in general? Yeah, it's good. I don't think we've seen her like in this mode before. You know, I'm always a little wary of when. Um, let's say highborn actors um <laughs> slum it um but i think she connects to the sort of emotional core of it and there's a you know you sort of you buy her her rage i guess it doesn't feel like a put on um and again i love the line everything you touch turns to shit that's great yeah I, uh, the way i put it when i talked to her is i was like um usually you play erudite characters this sure is there you a go. departure for you yeah. um yeah i was searching for that word but like yeah this is something a little different from her um you will already already heard sort of how she got into that mode. But um, we then also explore the house. And this is a uh, perfect fodder for Reddit. Here's here's where you're going to find all the things that Reddit's going to be pouring over for the next few weeks. Um, they go into, first they go into Julie's room and they find all these, um, these drawings, um, including one of like a, a wedding scene. Uh, which might be of her family, but also might be something else. Who knows? Um, and then they go into Will's room <clears throat> and they find Playboys under the mattress. Um, and then they, on the bureau, we see a scout handbook and then something called the forest of Lang, like a D and D companion book called the forest of Lang. That's not a real thing that exists. So this is some classic true detective Carcosa shit right here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, this is when we bring in sort of the, um, the Lovecraftian Cthulhu stuff because Lang, L-E-N-G, the force of Lang, um, Lang is a, a Lovecraft thing. It's the plateau of Lang is an alternate world sort of thing in Lovecraftian lore. And a lot of fantasy writers have used, it's like such an iconic to fantasy writer. Uh, thing that has been used by Stephen King, by George R. R. Martin, by like a bunch of other people have just like used this place of Lang as like this weird eldritch, uh, creepy kind of place. Like, uh, like what describe it a little more? Like, what, is it like verdant? Is it, is it, is it, or does it have any sort of physical characteristic or is it more just like, it's just a reference to another place? I think it's like a, it's a, it varies from, uh, story to story. Um, but it's always like, it always evokes, it's not like Valhalla or something like that. It's just like a word that I think is, is, you know, the plains of Lang is meant to convey, 
um, some other uh, monster ridden sort of place. Um, and in, in like, for example, George R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire, um, Lang is an isolated island inhabited in part by a culture that worships the old ones who dwell underground in subterranean ruins and labyrinths. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's where the old monsters are, I think is what I would say. So, yeah. Um, and, uh, so we have, we have that reference here. Once, once again, it's the second, like, sort of Stephen King type of thing, uh, kids on bikes. And it ha, we happen to get it at the same time we get this shot. This beautiful, I think the most beautiful shot of the episode of these cops at night with their, uh, flashlights going into this foggy field and sort of trying to find the kids in this foggy field. Um, and right around the same time, we also learned that the park that's nearby where eventually they find Will's body is called Devil's Den. So, you know, like we're, we're laying on the sort of, uh, Kirby Monsters vibe pretty thick here. And, and more of that West Memphis 3 satanic stuff, you know? Right, right. As we'll get to. Okay. So let's, let's hop along quickly. Uh, we, we get another suspect. We don't see him, but we get another suspect in Lucy's cousin, her cousin Dan, who, um, has been cast in the series. So like he will show up. But Dan, uh, we find out was like sleeping in Will's room, had a peephole in the closet that looked onto the couch where Will himself was sleeping. So some nice like pedophilia, uh, stuff going on there, potentially. Uh, the detectives are hot on that trail. Um, and then we get another nice bleed between past and present when the, the moon that's reflected in a puddle that Wayne's look at, looking at goes out. And that's like the light of the TV crew in 2015. So all that's happening. But then like, then we get, this is the true detective shit that I love. Uh, because I was an English major. <laughs> so we get to meet Amelia. Uh, what did you think of, uh, Amelia's reading a Robert Penn Warren poem out loud to her class? What did you think of this introduction of this character? I thought it was great. I think it was, it, it served both well to introduce a Jogo to the, ecosystem of the show and she's got a you know she's she's got a great sort of sonorous voice and so you know she read that passage beautifully and i think it's also introducing true detective either newbies or fans to like like you said the kind of okay here's like the literary heft part of it if there's going to be any you know like don't worry i know we've had however many minutes of just kind of more copy stuff but like here's where it gets denser and even if what she's reading doesn't have any actual pertinence to the literal case it 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 it's further shaping the sort of mood and world of of this season yeah it's atmospheric right yeah. like it's atmosphere it's and it, it is like this is Whatever we can determine after three seasons of True Detective, like, I think this is part of the True Detective brand, which is like Nick Pizzolatto, who was a, who was a novel writer before he was a TV showrunner saying like, I'm not here just bringing you like dead Steve McQueen cop drama. I've got some literary bona fides here as well. And apparently yeah. his novels are quite good. Um, I have not read them, but, um, the, the Robert Penn Warren poem, uh, which is called Tell Me a Story, uh, the part she reads out, I think she just reads the second part, which is tell me a story in this century and moment of mania. Tell me a story. Make it a story of great distances and starlight. The name of the story will be time, but you must not pronounce its name. Tell me a story of deep delight. Like this is just some beautiful Russ Cole. Bullshit. I love it. I'm here for it. Um, and then on, on her, on her chalkboard in her classroom, it says, uh, what is the name of the world is sort of her prompt. Which um, is such an evocative yeah. thing, especially after we've just been 
where some of us introduced to a world called Lang, you know? All right. And then we get, we get the cops sort of interrogating the teens. Um, as you mentioned, this is where we get some like Black Sabbath sort of, uh, prejudicial stuff. Uh, when it comes to the Ryan character, the teens are doing what you would expect teens to do, which is tell some truths and some lies. So we don't know exactly, you know, what, what they're, what's, what the truth is here. Uh, but then we get this like sort of lovely, like it's just so beautifully immediately apparent that Wayne is taken with Amelia. Uh, Roland knows it. We know it. Mahershala just does such a good job just being like, you know, struck in by this English teacher, uh, who has some impertinent information. She does, she doesn't, like, she teaches a wide range of kids because she doesn't just teach these teens. She also taught Will. And she was like, Will was a sensitive sort, didn't get out as much sort of thing. So, um. I like when he asked her, how is it here or something? You know, what's, I forget what the exact line is. I think we're referring to how do they treat you because you're black. You know, oh, yeah, um, yeah. and I was just this like shorthand, immediate understanding. And she was like, you know, you hear things in the hall, but like they mostly, you know, treat me well or whatever. I just thought that was a nice acknowledgement um, on the show's part that they, you know, because sometimes I feel like actors of color get cast in roles and it's like they just, they just happen to be, you know, whatever without actually addressing the, that they, that would have real world context and implications, you know, positive or negative or whatever. And so I think it was nice that at least this episode was like, yes, these are black people in 1980 Arkansas would, you know, right. there are other black people there. Yes. But it's a pretty, also can be a pretty charged place to live. I would imagine. This is not like, a, we're not just colorblind casting here. Exactly. We're going yeah. to deal with the realities of what it was like to be. This yeah. Way. Um, uh, yeah. So that's great. I love this introduction of Amelia. I'm really, I'm really taken by this character, uh, as a, you know, uh, an English major. Uh, okay. And then we get, uh, you know, investigating the other suspect, which is the, the trash man fella. Um, uh, where we find, we go to his house, which is just filled with trash, and we find out that he was in Vietnam. So we should say, uh, you know, and then they have a conversation, uh, where the Roland character says, like, a lot of guys have trouble when they come back. We know that that kind of could apply as much to Wayne, obviously, as it could, uh, right. uh, this character that they're talking about. Um, we should note, uh, for our listeners who may not know, I had to Google it myself because sometimes my Vietnam War history is a little fuzzy, but that the Vietnam War ended in 1975 and we're in 1980. So Five years after the end, and of the in album. some capacity, it had been happening for fifteen years. You know, right? So it was a long end. Of, it was the end of a long thing, and obviously, historically, we know that like when those guys came home, they were not given the hero's welcome that World War II veterans were given. Um, and so it was a pretty dark time with you know, and you know, just nineteen eighty, they're just about to come out of a recession with you know, well, arguably Reagan helping with deregulation and all that. So. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a very specific time and place. And I think that again, in ter- like involving the context of it, like the Vietnam aspect of it, it's not just a detail about like, oh, he can track or he can do this. It's like the whole community and communities beyond are feeling the still the kind of reverberations of that thing. It is so interesting because so when True, De- True Detective came out the same year as uh, Fargo season one on FX, uh, and it was sort of like ushering in this new era of American limited series television, uh, prestige television. Um, and then, you know, uh, Fargo kept going in, you know, your mileage may vary on the subsequent seasons, but like kept going with a stronger consistency than True Detective did. True Detective kind of crashed and burned in season two. Now it's coming back. Fargo started chugging along. Fargo season two 
is so much about this, about, um, you know, cause both Patrick Wilson's character and a number of other characters are Vietnam vets come back yeah. to a rural part of America and sort of what, what do you do with the horrors that you've seen? How do you be a virtuous person? How do you be, um, how do you grapple with the horrors at home sort of stuff? And Especially so, when the horrors, I mean, in, in, in terms of geographically and, environmentally were so different, you know, I mean, the, you know, the jungles of, of Southeast Asia versus, you know, or, or mountain mountains, you know, it's, it's, it's different. It's similar. It's, it's all kind of, um, it's just an interesting, you know, if we're talking about evoking a sort of other place, you know, full of danger, uh, like in that, in that book, in, in the kid's room, like for some, maybe Vietnam could have functioned in that way, you know, and, and maybe yeah. still lingers in that way. And, um, with a surreal, quality but also obviously a viscerally real one so i don't know i hope that that sort of they keep fl- flushing out that texture um yeah and i i i really love it i'm cautiously optimistic about where it might go um and then we have uh in in the past and in the present Wayne's saying, I'm ready to go now. I don't want to be here. And he's, he's doesn't want to be in that house, uh, the trash man's house anymore. And he doesn't want to be in this TV interview anymore. Uh, and he sort of cuts off the interview and goes into what I, what I would say is probably his wife's study, um, where she has a pile of, of her, her book, her classic book, uh, for him to look at. Um, and this is where, this is right around where I, uh, freezed the uh the the camera the the video uh and i can just read you the back of the book is called life and death in the harvest moon murder a child abduction in the community destroyed by amelia hayes his wife um and you know so the back of the book has her bio which is just stuff we already know about being married to him having two kids um and then the description says um it's a cold day in the small town of West Finger, Arkansas, nestled in the shadow of the Ozark Mountains. Two young children wave goodbye to their father and pedal their bicycles into the sun. Then as simply as it begins, and then his fingers covering something. Um, it ends transformed into a family's nightmare. Uh, Will Purcell obscured deep in the woods and his sister Julie never comes home. So this is what we know of the case is that we find Will dead and Julie, uh, as far as we know, uh, until 1990, uh, as far as we know, she's just missing. Presumed um, dead, probably. Presumed dead. Yeah. yeah. Um, although actually she wrote the book after 1990 when he finds out the information about the fingerprint in 1990. Oh, it's true. Right? Yeah. 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 So maybe that's, that's a reveal about what we find out in 1990. But, um, the, uh, you know, then we get, we get, we're back on the hunt in 1980. Uh, Roland and Wayne are in the woods with other cops looking, looking for the kids. Uh, Wayne starts to go off on his, on his own and some local cop is like, oh, why is he going off on his own or whatever? And this mm-hmm. is, this is Roland's chance to be like, well, he's a long range reconnaissance tracker from Vietnam and they would drop him in the jungle alone and they come back two, three weeks later with scalps. Once again, the use of scalps here is like, I'm like, what is all this Native American coding on this character? It's, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah. No, you're right. It, it's, it um, is strange. Uh, and so, um, Wayne finds, he's following tire tracks. He finds Will's bike, uh, that we saw at the Ranger Tower. He finds it like in the mud and he keeps following the tracks, takes photos. And then he finds these weird little corn husk bride dolls. Um, these are Native American objects. So, you know, we've got a Cree actor in a role. You know, I, I can't help but think that this is going to 
cast suspicion on that yeah. character. One thing I will say about this is, uh, well, not about that issue particularly, but about this scene, it, you know, with, with, um, the information that he was a long way track or whatever, and then that, that he gradually finds the body. It's like, he doesn't seem to be doing anything particularly expert or, you know, different from anyone else. He just walked in a different direction. So like, I know the show is trying to set it up as like, this is his case because he's the sort of like investigative, you know, you know, intuitive investigator to find the body and do this. But like, he kind of, in truth, it's a little bit accidental that he happens to find the body, right? Uh, he's following tire tracks, so I will give him that. Okay, that's true. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, yeah, he, he, you know, it's not like, I mean, but I would rather it that way. I would rather it like he followed some tire tracks and, you know, got a little lucky or something like that, then like he could smell something on the wind or something right, crazy, right, you know? Right. So, yeah, yeah. um, so he finds Will in this cave eventually and Will is sort of posed with his hands in like a prayer position, which is super creepy. Um, I, I don't know if you had this, I had this moment. I don't know if you can remember when you watched the first episode, but I had this moment where I was like, he finds the body. He's been taking photos of like the cornhus dolls and the and the bike, and then he finds the body, and it's fun. And it's fun as you know, we broken 2019 people are like, oh, this is what it's like for you had a phone in your pocket. Um, but like he he finds the body, and then he doesn't take the photo. He walks out of the cave, and I was like so paranoid that like the body would then disappear, and no one would believe him that he. I don't know. <laughs> I like my 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 mind went off of this weird thing, but that's not what happens. He radios in that he found the body. Uh, Roland and the rest of the cops come to sort of, you know, put together the scene. They start bagging up the dolls. He mentions that the dolls are elsewhere. Um, it's cutting back and forth in time. He says that Will's head looks injured. He says they they have to keep looking for Julie. And then we find out in the 1990 storyline, you know, that maybe they got the wrong man 10 years ago, whoever, once again, whoever that man may be, maybe they got the wrong man 10 years ago. Um, Wayne is fed up with this interview as well. He's like, I'm leaving until you tell me everything that's going on. We'll do this 20 minutes at a time, which I, I thought was really funny. I'm like, that's the format of the show. Uh, but we'll do this 20 minutes at a time. And that's when, uh, these guys, these lawyers tell him that, uh, you know, a, f- a fingerprint database has kicked up a, like a hit on Julie Purcell that she was, you know, implicated in a burglary and at the Walgreens, uh, that she's alive. In 1990, and he's like, "She's alive, shit." So, um, and he has some explanation for like the how they got the prints for the kids, or something. There's something right. like that. And it just like it was just like it 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 hit in the system, um, and so you're thinking, okay, ten years later, she's what's, around. What's really funny about all this, and we've been sort of like hitting this here and there as we as we rant this episode, um, is how much I think about the shows we watched last year for still watching. Uh, coming together for this because you've got some Westworld stuff and sharp object stuff as we talked about, but this to me is like pure Anastasia because I was like, yeah, right. right, that's Julie Purcell. I was like, I don't believe that that's right. her. Yeah. Uh, so you know, that's good. This girl is back allegedly, but once again, having seen no further episodes, having no spoilers, I do not believe, uh, and having not put together that clue on the back of of Amelia's book, uh, I do not believe this is the real Julie. Well, but if so. they are gonna go, okay, if they are gonna go a Romanov's though I do hope that Isabel Huppert plays the pretend Julie Purcell. <laughs> I was in France. Uh, we aged differently there. We aged differently there. Now I will sing a song from the animated movie uh, Anastasia. Perfect. Um, 
Yes, and scene. So anyway, so that is the, our first episode of True Detective, which I watched twice and enjoyed enormously the second time. Me too. Like, Me li- too. liked the first time and then just like, like kind of loved the second you time. You get, you really get the details better because you're not trying to, like, you, you, you're done sort of getting the broader, you know, sort of shape of the show. So you can really zero in on like all the little weird details about a bore or the book or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. And if this, and this was, if this was like, uh, you know, an episode of po- a podcast episode where you're like, why are they telling me so many actor names and stuff like that? Like, you know, this, this is business. We're all going to get away, like out of the way to begin with. And then we can just like talk about characters rather than actor names. But it's fun to like know the context of certain actors. Um, as we go into this series, uh, is there anything sort of overall? Do you, do you spoiler free have any like theories you want to throw my way or anything like that? Did Ben Barnes do it? Like what's, what's going on? I don't know. Ben, did you do it? Sorry. Oh, sorry. He's asleep. Um, oh, he's still but, sleeping. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, he's such, yeah. Sack hound. That one. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I think my big theory right now is that they're going to go West Memphis three angle with the exoneration. Uh, you know, the reopening of the case. I don't know if actually that case was reopened. I don't think it was, which is kind of crazy, but you know, I think that's the, the theme they're going toward. I kind of hope they're not, but we'll see. Um, I, what is my theory? My theory. I don't, I'm, I'm now just trying to sit here and figure out who I think has been convicted. I think they wrongfully convict Scoot and that this is going to be something to do with Scoot. But Scoot, I. Scoot, do they convict you? <laughs> Still God, sleeping? He's asleep too. God. We God. Have, we're going to be late, late now. <laughs> Sure, sure. All right. Um, I'm going to leave you with a little bit of uh, this uh, Audubon, another Audubon poem, or sorry, another Robert Penn Warren poem that Amelia reads to close up the episode uh, from the book Audubon A Vision called Love and Knowledge, uh, where she says, uh, he slew them at surprising distances with his gun over a body held in his hand. His head was bowed low, but not in grief. He put them where they are. And there we see them in our imagination. What is love? Our name for it is knowledge. So we've got some, some gunslinging, some beautiful esoteric poetry at this just fucking true detective. I'm mm-hmm. excited. It's back. Um, Richard, where can people find you? Ben Barnes and Scoot McNary um, until we come back next week. Uh, we'll be driving around uh, with Mamie Gummer, just telling people everything they touch turns to shit. Cause it's fun. To, <laughs> it's fun to say, uh, where, where will you be? Oh, I'm also um, going to be on Rylaws and VF.com. Okay, cool. Well, I'll be at VF.com and I wrote this, but mostly I'll be busy with my Etsy cornhusk doll uh, business that I'm getting off the ground. So I'll be, I'll be busy doing. That. I'm sure there's going to be a run for those after this episode airs. <laughs> You can you can email us your theories and your thoughts at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Uh, this, epido- uh, th- this episode was edited by Dave Gonzalez, and we will see you all next week. Have you sat back in the last two decades? Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations sparking movements and breaking barriers for over a decade the new three-part docuseries black twitter a people's history based on the groundbreaking wired cover story by jason parham explores everything from the fun games and inside jokes that characterize the early years of black twitter to the social movements the voices and the hashtags that made black twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of american political culture join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community tracing its origins 
celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.